Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker, and I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. And I really love having geeky conversations with people about new things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover and talk about new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Over the last couple of weeks here on the podcast, we have been spending time looking at Paul's theology. But let's look at where Paul gets his theology, the book of Deuteronomy. This week, I talk with Professor Pinhas Shear about his course titled The First Commandment, Deuteronomy in the Gospels. I have to admit that it does not take people all that long after meeting me to find out that Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books of the Bible. I see connections from it to almost every other book. And based on the number of copies of Deuteronomy that were found, Jews in the Second Temple period liked it too. And now Pinhas and I talk about this gem of a book with a particular emphasis on how Deuteronomy shows up in obvious and not so obvious ways in the Gospels. I'm very excited to be talking about Deuteronomy, and I almost can't believe that we haven't done this conversation earlier for as much as I gravitate towards Deuteronomy. I know you have a special place for Deuteronomy in your heart, too. So Let's start first just with the stats that Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted scrolls or books in the Gospels. So what do you think that is telling us about what people, what Jews in the first century are thinking about? Like, why is Deuteronomy used so much? several theories why Deuteronomy is the most quoted one. I mean, obviously that pretty much clearly makes it a favorite, at least a favorite of of the writers who are writing those stories. But I think it is a favorite one of the people. It is cohesive because it is like almost a book that is said in one breath. I mean, it's like when you start opening the book, right? So Devarim, In fact, right now in the Torah cycle, we are studying Devarim right now. So I'm thinking those thoughts even as we're talking. So you open the book and it says, these are the words, you know, these are the things that Moses said to the Israelites. And then he launches in this one big, long, essentially what is, can be called the monologue. I mean, it's a song, it's a sermon, but it's like one big cohesive message. And it's not really interrupted with things. Okay. So while we go to, let's say, Bamidbar, right? And so you kind of have a story, teaching story, teaching narrative. There's some commandments, there's some explanations, but then it just keeps jumping back and forth. So here in Deuteronomy, it's just kind of a monologue. And that I think that nature of a, being a very cohesive, very directed, very pointed, very purposeful teaching is what makes Deuteronomy different, essentially. And that's what makes people 
like it because it's just a message that flows without interruption. And you know what you're going to get chapter after chapter after chapter. You're going to get very clear teaching and instruction on particular commandments. And what did God really want to say when he gave us these words? And, and so Moses goes deeper into explanation. Many of the commandments that have already been stated. So I think that's why people like it because it's kind of like, kind of like it's kind of like the cliff notes to the Torah, essentially, if you think about it that way. I just think that is a perfect way to kind of state what the book is. And it's not this monologue that drones on and on. It's persuasive. So it's evocative of mm -hmm. emotions and ideas that are super intriguing. Yeah. That's what I think makes, makes it very alluring to a lot of people. If this is something important to you, if the topic is that something that you really feel this is crucial and central for you, then that makes the book really stand out among the other books in that sense that it's that cohesiveness of the message like that. So uh, why is it quoted all the time in the Gospels? Well, why is it quoted more often than other books in the Gospel? Perhaps because of that. But I would say probably reflects the general familiarity of people. Out of all the books, all the scrolls were, of course, read in the synagogue and they studied. But this is the one that people drew to because perhaps a lot more memorization happened in that particular uh, book. I remember when we're talking about ancient culture, we're not talking about a culture where people carried around copies of the Bible like we do today. You know, today you see a person carrying a Bible with them or something like that. And you're like, okay. They have everything they need, right? they've packed, but people actually packed it in their heads by simply memorizing those passages. And so these are the passages. And, and it's if you're going to memorize something, you're going to memorize statements that are have that summary-like power, so to say, where all the most important things are packed in. And to me, that's how Deuteronomy is. It's that summary-like sense of Deuteronomy that makes it it makes it the kind of book you would want to memorize, essentially. It's practical. Uh, so I think that's that's the reason why. I mean, whether well, there's a, a, the other book that's quoted in, in the Gospels of Psalms quite a bit, and why? So I, we have to ask the same exact question. It's inspirational. It's something that touches people's lives. So perhaps Psalms and Deuteronomy have that same sort of, say, effect on people, and that would make sense why they would quote it. But besides the quotations, and we have what, maybe, what, 10 maybe quotations, a dozen quotations or something like that, or just a handful of them, we also have a lot of what we would call allusions. They're references to the text. They're not direct quotes. They're like these little hints that we drop. But when you know the text really well, you don't need much more than one or two keywords to take you in that direction. It's like, you know, I give an illustration to to an American audience. If I say, oh, say, can you see, right? <laughs> right. Everyone can finish that sentence because they know by the dawn's early line. So yeah. it's like, I don't need to give you a lot of hints of where you need to go if what I'm zeroing in on is iconic. And, and that's what Deuteronomy is. It's iconic in that sense. I also wanted to ask even just about the title of the course, because it's called The First Commandment, Deuteronomy and the Gospels. So yeah, what, yeah. what is the correlation there between the first commandment and then the use of Deuteronomy in the Gospels? 
So when I started putting together the course, I felt like I wanted to take part of my course focusing on the Ten Commandments. Why? Because whenever you think about Deuteronomy, people think about God's law. And when you think about God's law, you think about the core, the foundation. And the Ten Commandments, or what we call them, the Ten Commandments, that's the foundation, right? So I wanted to focus a little bit on explaining the Jewish tradition that relates to Ten Commandments and how it's a little bit different. Because what Christians learn about Ten Commandments a lot of times is very not like what Jews learn about Ten Commandments. And I wanted to bring that out. And I actually wanted to ask people, what is the first commandment? That's a question I'm asking. And Jews will have a different answer from Christians. Now, most Christians, of course, don't realize that because they never talk about this issue with anyone except their own crowd. So, yes, so the lists of commandments differ. We all end with the same commandment. We don't begin uh, with the same commandment. That's what I'm trying to say. So I focus quite a bit about what is the first commandment. And I try to explain that that thinking, that Jewish thinking of what the first commandment is, actually is reflected in the Gospels. And so I'm trying to trace that thinking of where this idea that this is the first commandment and not that. Let's put it that way. So, and then I spent quite a bit of time and of course talking about what are the Ten Commandments to Jews and how they're being treated versus how Christians seem the word commandment. So, because there's this huge disparity, I say, between Hebrew and English. I use the language Ten Commandments all the time. Why? Because it's a traditional language. It's what everybody knows. If I start calling them 10 utterances, if I say 10 utterances, nobody in the world will understand what in the world I'm talking about. But that's exactly what Hebrew does. Uh, so in in Hebrew, a commandment is a mitzvah uh, from uh, tzav to command. So you have mitzvah is a commandment, something that God specifically says, this is it, do it. But they're not called such in the text of Deuteronomy. The, those sayings, those teachings, those statements are called divrot. Okay, so it's a seren chadibrot. That's what they're calling Jewish tradition. It's the ten sayings or the ten utterances. Well, why? Why all of a sudden the Torah itself calls that those words ten sayings, and why do Jews not necessarily always call them ten commandments? Now in English we do, but that's colloquial. It doesn't really reflect what the text actually says. And and are they even treated as commandments? Let's put it that way. And, and I go through a whole lot of, of Jewish tradition and kind of perspectives and expose people to some of the ideas that they probably have never heard about of how else you can think about these 10 foundational statements, how they can be viewed. And then I try to reflect a lot of that thinking in the gospel by showing to people that, hey, look, here are examples of people looking at these statements in the type of, of way and in the frame of thinking that I'm trying to describe to you right now. So it sounds to me like the title of the course invites all of you into curiosity about the idea of what actually is the first commandment. And did anyone else notice that he didn't actually give us an answer? I guess anyone who wants to know will need to go to IsraelBibleCenter.com and enroll in his course. I wanted to know Professor Shear's views about something that floats around in the scholarly world about the Ten Commandments being not necessarily ten words, but ten categories. Quite a few studies have been done to demonstrate the laws in Deuteronomy are organized, roughly, 
to follow the pattern of the 10 words. Well, I bring that out in my course because I really want people to understand that 10 commandments are not 10 individual commandments. I mean, it, at least in Jewish tradition, that's not how, how they're understood. It's not just these 10 things you do and everything else is not really important. You know, just, just stick to the, you know, just, just do the 10. It's like, you know, this, there's this idea that, okay, Judaism says 10 commandments, you know, you got to do these. Uh, but then comes Jesus and he says, no, no, you, you only need two. Love God, love your neighbor. That the, Jesus only gives two commandments. And then comes Paul and he says, no, just love. You know, so he only gives one commandment. So you kind of have this digression of just simplifying and oversimplifying <laughs> everything, you know, what it really means to follow God. So, so then we end up with this kind of crazy notion that all you need is love. And however you define that is becomes very confusing. Uh, so back to the idea of commandments not really being truly individual commandments. So I kind of explain uh, how commandments can be seen as really categories, almost like the umbrella statements under which each different commandment in the Torah may fall. And so I, I take people through the list of commandments. I explain how people have always wrestled in in. In Jewish tradition, people have always tried to categorize commandments, and in Christian tradition too. But it's interestingly that how people categorize commandments in Jewish tradition and Christian tradition is completely different, and it really has to do with what's relevant to you. And I explain some of the Jewish categories and how people went through that. But that idea of categorizing, uh, we can use it in a variety of different ways. And ten commandments can be seen each one of the ten individually standing as a broader category. And I go a little bit into detail of how that can be done, because if you think about it, most of the commandments we can think of in the Bible can fit onto one of those big umbrella statements. Um, whatever you may pick, if we think about it, okay, where can it, can we nestle this into somewhere? And the answer is yes. So in that sense, 10 commandments become not 10 individual commandments, but they become 10 umbrella ideas under which many, 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 many other commandments and in Jewish understanding traditions and customs and everything else all fit under. And so they become the 10 summary statements, if you want to think of them that way, that kind of help us to focus on the core. And, and that's a new idea for many people to think commandment, think of commandments as categories rather than individual do this, don't do that. Since we're talking about the 10 words, commandments, or categories, I want to ask about a familiar story in the Gospels in which a man goes up to Jesus and asks how to obtain eternal life. Even that question is quite interesting. Who's thinking about eternal life? What does eternal life actually mean in their heads? But Jesus replies with the second half of the 10 words, the human to human commandments. And then the guy's like, yep, I do it. I'm good. What else? And Jesus says, give away everything. It's an interesting, if not slightly perplexing conversation. So I asked Pinchas, what is going on? And what is it that the guy is actually asking of Jesus? It, it is a fascinating conversation that I think most people miss. Again, why? Because what we think about as modern people 
is framed by a slightly different understanding. You mentioned eternal life. You know, when he says eternal life, what is in his mind is what I want to know. Right. Well, I'm willing to bet that it's not exactly the same things that we have in mind. Because as the years of Christian theology pass through, people have constructed this idea of eternal life and what's it going to be. And for most people, eternal life is a heavenly life. Okay. I'm going to be in heaven with God, floating on the cloud, uh, strumming on the harp, whatever that means. I don't know where that comes. I get my wings or there's all sorts of interesting sort of say teachings that are out there of what heavenly life was going to be and what, and it's all about heaven. But, you know, in Jewish tradition, it's actually all about earth. It's about living here and now. And then having that go on forever, not ever having to lose the land that you have, not ever having enemies come and just dispossess, you know, of, of all this. Uh, it, eternal life in, in the mind of an ancient person is not necessarily some sort of a heavenly life, Mike, because when we read Deuteronomy, guess what it talks about? It talks about that kind of life. If you do these commandments that I say to you today, you will have good life in your land. And this is going to happen. And that is going to happen. And when you get Deuteronomy, we kind of get the flip side. If you don't do these commandments, all these terrible, awful things are going to happen to you. And that's the opposite of having eternal life. That's having eternal trouble, essentially. I mean, you are going into a season of serious suffering. Um, so I have, we have to ask a question. What is this person thinking when he's asking eternal life? Is he thinking like a theologian of 13th century of how do I get to heaven idea? Because Jews were not thinking that way at all. I mean, uh, the idea that an average Jew never asks a question, how do I get saved or how do I go to heaven or anything like that? That is not something that's would be, that would be the furthest thing from their mind. From, from their perspective, they're the people of the covenant. They're in by the virtue that God said, you're my people. But the virtue of God says, I, I know you by name, you're mine, you're my firstborn. I mean, how much more relationship do we need? Right. <laughs> I don't have any insecurities, you know, that were like, well, maybe God will allow me to be with him in eternity. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> we're family. He chose us. He picked us. He called us. He made us out of nothing. I mean, he took an old man and an old woman who couldn't make any babies and said, I'm going to make people out of them. And there comes a nation. And so if that, if God goes through all that trouble, then he's going to say, oh, no, all of them are going to hell. And we're just going to work out some kind of special arrangement so that they can figure out how to get themselves out of this terrible situation. You can see how that that is not the thinking. It's not natural thinking for, for an ancient Israelite, certainly. So when we talk about this man coming to Jesus and asking this question, that is not what he's asking. How do I get saved? How do I get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? Because I don't have eternal life right now. No, what he's saying is, how do I continue having good life with God? How do I stay on a path? How do I not get off onto a wrong path and end up in a really bad, terrible situation? Because in the history of our people, we certainly had many times where we walk away when we just stray off. And then God has to do exactly what he said in the end of Deuteronomy he will do to us by bringing us back. To bring us back, he's going to bring all sorts of trouble in our lives. And then we're going to realize, oh, my God, we need to repent. What have we done? We come back. 
I mean, Deuteronomy in that sense is such a beautiful book because it builds in that system of here's the promises, you're going to mess up, but it's okay because I know you're going to mess up. So when you do, there's a vehicle for you to repent, to come back, and, and then you're back in these promises. And, and so this is what I see happening in the gospel. He comes and asks him this question. And curiously enough, Jesus answers in a very non-Christian way. He actually tells <laughs> yes. them to do something. I mean, think about it. I mean, I, I talked to Christians about it, and I said, this is not a very Christian Jesus. Because he doesn't tell them, believe in me, baptize, you know, whatever, confess with your mouth. I mean, all, all of that stuff that we hear about, you know, in other places. Jesus doesn't, tell, doesn't say anything like that. Like, believe in the power of my resurrection or anything like that. No, he just tells them, live right. Follow Torah. Do what you know you're supposed to do. Be the kind of Jew that God wants you to be. Yeah, so there's no secret here. There's no magic. Just, you know, do what you're told. Follow the program. You know, be faithful to God. And, and the guy says, I'm already doing that. And that's when Jesus says, oh, you're sure you're doing that? All right. I'm going to give you another aspect of something you're perhaps not doing. Are you, do you really understand what it's truly living for God, sort of say? And that's what he's saying to him. Uh, and then he tells him, no, I want you to be radical about your faith. I want you to practice the kinds of things that the Torah says to practice, to be selfless, you know, to share the wealth, you know, because one of the things that amazes people in Torah is that God basically outlines an economic system that is completely unlike any other economic system that is anywhere functioning in any society at that time or now. And the economic system that God describes is kind of a kingdom system is what we call it. I mean, it, it implies that God is on the throne and people are actually following his commandments. And Israel has struggled from the very beginning to try to stay on track with this economic system of taking care of the poor and the needy and pro providing the benevolence and lending without interest. And like, you know, think about it, a simple thing like a no interest loan. How about that? I mean, who does that, right? But like, here it is, you know, take this money, it's a loan, make yourself better, get yourself out of this hole that you ended up in, you know, the system of benevolence, the, the way that land is treated, you know, the reversal of any type of transaction, uh, the year of Jubilee, the Shemitah, all of these laws that God gives, they're completely unique and different. Other nations don't have anything like that whatsoever. All of them pretty much create this alternative system of benevolence and mercy and kindness and so is that not what Jesus tells them to do? He says, do something like that, radical. Take all your wealth and just give it away because it's not yours anyway. Don't worry. God's going to reward you, you know. And this is something, of course, a man is not able to do because he's not quite that spiritual as put it that way. He is taking care of his neighbors, right? He is loving other Jews. He is loving others in the society. But Jesus says, well, you really want to practice that second most important commandment? Go, go radical. Love them to the nth degree. <laughs> Give away everything you have. <laughs> He's not able to do that. So he says, well, you know, if there are only two commandments in the Torah, you're not really truly living out that second one. Not quite yet. So it's a philosophical conversation in a way that helps another Jew to understand that Though he does understand the Torah and he's a good person and he's living and he's been taught it his entire life, there is a much deeper way of practicing 
that second commandment to the degree to which he's not capable of. And it's so interesting that all of that is attached to his original question of eternal life and understanding actually what it is that he is asking. It makes this conversation that we often just flip over and turns it into this really deep, really meaningful life instruction that we could probably spend a lot more time on. It's just really beautiful. Yeah. I mean, because if it because if we're talking about eternal life, like heavenly life, then you know, we you can flip this and say, okay, Jesus is talking about unless you give away all your money, you're not getting into heaven, which is going to be a problem for most people because most of us do not give away all of our money, right? So uh, that's a big guilt trip right there. So you imagine, you know, is that what he's going to? If that becomes a prerequisite for eternal life, then give away everything you have and, you know, live monk style life, just completely ascetic. You know, is that what Jesus is teaching? Obviously not. I think most of us can understand that. But, uh, but you can take those passages and you can take them in a variety of different directions. And, and what I do in, in my course is I, I take it into direction that I think an average Jew in that era would have taken it into. If you cannot wait to hear more and embrace Deuteronomy from a direction that might be new to you, you can enroll today in Professor Shear's course, The First Commandment, Deuteronomy in the Gospels. There is a link to the course in the show notes of the episode. Join this course with others, and you can even earn a certificate in Jewish context and culture. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job mixing, editing, and crafting all the good sounds you hear. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.